As has already been introduced so well this morning, we have entered the season of Advent. And the decorations that have been mentioned, the songs that have been sung, I hope has begun to uh, work in your spirit and in your mind, maybe a little bit of the excitement that comes so easily to the children. You know, at this time of year, we begin to rehearse things that for many of us we have rehearsed many, many times before. We begin to do things that we've done many, many times before. We prepare, we plan, we rehearse, and we reenact time-honored traditions. We decorate, we put up Christmas trees, we sing carols, attend Christmas pageants, exchange gifts, and of course, the most time-honored tradition of all is we eat, right? Who doesn't love eating at Christmas time? And as Jamie mentioned earlier, interwoven into the fabric of all of these traditions is the retelling of the most improbable, incredible, and inspiring story ever told. For in and amongst all the decorations, all of the songs, everything we do is retelling the story of Christ coming into this world, the incarnation. We repeatedly sing this infinitely profound truth but often without thought or understanding, when we sing the words of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. You see, God the Son became God the man. The Creator became as one of his creations. He became exactly like us. As crazy as that seems when we look in the mirror to think that God looked at us and said, I'm going to become completely like one of them. He is fully man, yet fully divine. And as a result, the God who once seemed so distant, he came close. And through the incarnation, the full revelation of God the full revelation of his gracious will and intent for all people of all nations of all time was declared to the world. And he didn't send it in an elaborate message. He sent it in the form of a child, a baby boy lying in a manger. And so through the incarnation, the full revelation of God towards man was revealed. It took some time for the full revelation to be understood, but it was all there that very first day. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ in the stable of Bethlehem is what we, of course, focus on. It's what we focus on for the next month, and it's what we'll talk and sing about. But through the pages of Scripture... There are actually four revelations of Jesus Christ that span the ages. They actually bookend our universe from before the beginning of time to after the end of time. And so this Advent season, we are going to go on a cosmic journey, if you will. We are going to look at each of these fourfold revelations of Christ. And my hope, my desire and intent in in going through a study like this is that we come back with a better understanding of the full scope of God's master plan, which is centered around Christ for all time and eternity. And having done so, we will come back to the baby in the manger, 
with our hearts and our minds so filled with awe that all we can do is join in with the shepherds, with the wise men, and just bow down and worship this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Would you bow with me as we enter God's Word? Heavenly Father, we recognize in ourselves a tendency to forget or to simply push away Uh, in the busyness, in the clutter of life, the profound truth that your birth represents. We so easily forget the implications for not only our lives, but for the whole world. And so, Lord, it is good that once again we enter an Advent season to rehearse and to remember the deeper truths that your coming represent. And so, Lord Jesus, as we are Once again, looking at you and your plan, we understand that there is a great mystery here. That in the Godhead, your uh, divine nature between Father, Son, and Spirit, there is a profound mystery that is too deep for us to fully comprehend. And yet we we grasp, we, we seek to understand better, and we want to know you more. And so, Father, through your word this morning, though we are going to be studying some difficult concepts, some things that will challenge our our minds and and stretch our thinking, I pray, Father, that you would work through it. I pray that you would help me to explain it well and that you would speak through it to each one of us, Lord. May we come through this with a deeper sense of adoration and worship for who you are and what you have done for us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a story of a masked man carrying a gun who walks into a corner store and demands all the cash from the register. This is a holdup. Give me all the money. So the cashier puts all of the cash in a bag, but just then the robber also sees a bottle of scotch on the shelf behind the counter. He tells the cashier to put the scotch in the bag as well, but the cashier refused and explained, I don't believe you're over 21. The robber insisted, yes, I am, put it in the bag. I don't believe you. Show me some sort of proof that you're over 21. The robber, of course, says, well, I could shoot you, and then, you know, I just take it. The guy says, well, do what you have to do, but I have my rules. I cannot give it to you unless you produce evidence that you're over 21. And so the the masked man is, is getting antsy. He wants to get out of there. And so he pulls up his mask, shows... The, the clerk, his face, and he says, do I look like a teenager to you? Well, the cashier took a good long look at his face and said, yeah, you, you, you don't look like a teenager, but I've been fooled by appearances before. Still can't do it. Well, the now exasperated gunman pulls out his wallet, slaps down his driver's license on the counter. Cashier looks it over and finally agrees that, yes, the man was indeed well over 21 and placed the scotch in the bag. Immediately, the robber fled with his loot. The cashier picked up the phone and promptly called the police with a detailed description of the robber, complete with his name and home address, obtained from the driver's license. Two hours later, the police were waiting for the robber as he arrived home. Now, believe it or not, stories like this actually happen. And clearly, that robber was no master strategist or tactician. Now, as we chuckle over a story like that, over the ineptitude of a robber and his plan gone 
wrong, we think about how so often well-laid plans don't go the way that we want them to. There's an old saying that says, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Another version of that saying is in the army. They say, no plan survives first contact. And so as we consider God's plan for his creation and how the perfect world that he created was marred by sin, we can't help but feel that in some way God's plan was derailed. There's part of us that can't help but think that just like that cashier duped the robber, that perhaps in some way Satan duped God by sabotaging his plan A, if you will. And so along this line of reasoning, God has been in a reactionary mode ever since, which at first glance appears logical. Plan A was God creates a perfect world. Sin enters. It mars his plan. So he goes on to plan B. He chooses Israel to be a holy nation, his priests to the world, if you will. They rebel. Plan C, he sends them his prophets to bring them back to himself, but they reject the prophets and kill them. And so finally, finally, having tried everything else and seeing no other way to rescue the world, he implements plan D. He taps Jesus on the shoulder and says, you're in. And he sends Jesus almost as a last resort. But is that the way it really happened? Is that the way history really unfolded? Was God in a reactionary mode? Was the baby in the manger only plan D? Or was it plan A all along? Let's take a look at a few key passages of scripture this morning that are all like Pieces of a puzzle that when you put them together properly, they will help give us a clear picture. Now, you'll have to forgive me for jumping around a little bit to different passages this morning. I don't like to cherry pick, but all of these passages work together to give us a clear picture. And so the first passage I want to draw your attention to this morning, turn there with me, is 2 Timothy. Most of what we're going to be looking at this morning was written by the Apostle Paul, the one who was given this deep insight into the nature of God and his purposes for man. This is what he wrote to one of his, uh, his young protégés, if you will, Timothy. 2 Timothy, and there in chapter 1 and verses 9 to 10. Here is what he wrote to Timothy about God's intent for the world. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time. To show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. As commentator Ernest Best wrote, God is not a chess player who makes his next move only after he has seen the last move of his opponent. He works to a plan. And to that I would add, God is not a player in the game. God invented the game. The very existence of it was born in his mind. His voice spoke the board into being. His hands forged each piece 
and assigned each their unique movement. He determined the game's objective and set the rules that the players must abide by. Now, though it may appear to be God versus Satan sitting on opposite sides of the board, and of course, in this analogy, God is playing the white players, right? Satan is playing the black players. You wouldn't want to mess, mess with that metaphor. Opposite sides of the board, they're, they're matching wits. And we have this picture of them matching wits, and though Satan is crafty and cunning, think about a created being No matter how crafty and cunning he may be, the most powerful of all of the creations that God ever made, one of the archangels of heaven. But even though he is powerful, and if we were to match wits against Satan, he would defeat us every time, against God he is still a created being attempting to match wits with the creator, the one who made the game in the first place. What possible chance does Satan have of checkmating God? Gary Kasparov, the famous chess grandmaster, who was most famous for his, uh, his matches against the computers that they made to, uh, in attempts to defeat him, he was finally defeated by one computer program known as Deep Blue. And Gary Kasparov was once asked how many moves ahead he was able to see or anticipate in a game. He answered that he could not necessarily see the game many moves ahead. In fact, this is what he said. A player looking eight moves ahead faces as many possible game outcomes as there are stars in the galaxy. Now, as a novice chess player, that's what I would call myself, a novice, a rookie, I know the basic movements of the pieces so I can bumble my way through a game. But there was a time where I got into it a little bit. And as a novice chess player, when I would play my absolute best, I can sometimes anticipate up to two moves ahead with relative accuracy. Anticipate what my opponent might do if I move my piece here. And two two moves is the absolute furthest ahead that I can begin or even attempt to anticipate in a game of chess. The grandmaster, Kasparov, was capable of anticipating with some degree of accuracy, up to six or maybe even seven moves ahead. But even he admitted that at eight moves, the variable outcomes were infinite. How many moves ahead do you suppose that God is capable of seeing? How many variable outcomes is his mind capable of processing? The number is infinite. And so, from this infinite mind of the Creator, from His processing capabilities, before He even started the game clock running, He set His end goal. What is the point of this creation? What what do I hope to accomplish out of this creation that I'm about to set myself to? He set His end goal. He then went about processing all variables. All of them, all the infinite number of variables could be processed in his mind. And thereafter, he sets upon a course of action that no matter what Satan or the free will of man could possibly do to counter it, his plan would ultimately prevail. He would do it with such a master touch that he would not mess with the free will of man or his created beings, 
that no matter what variables were thrown along the way, he processed them all, set his plan that would not be thwarted. His plan would prevail in the end. Are you still with me? (laughs) Are you getting a little bit confused? Hang on, we're not done yet. We're going deeper. When did time begin? Anyone? When did time begin? I debated with messing with your minds and taking the clock off the wall and then, and then scaring everyone and being like, where's the clock? What, what are we going to do? And then holding it up and being like, here it is. I debated with that. I, th- I thought better. thought better of it. <laughs> when did time begin? Did the Swiss invent time in order to sell watches? Would have been really smart of them. Uh, Did it begin with the Egyptians' invention of the sundial? No, those are simply man's ways of keeping track of something that already existed. And Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14 gives us the answer of when time began. On the fourth day of creation, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs. To mark seasons and days and years. So what the scripture is saying is that at some point before day four of creation, the Godhead, that is God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Godhead, they had a meeting. They got together. And at that meeting, they decided ahead of time the purpose, the intent, and the ultimate goal for creation. And what is God's ultimate goal for his creation? Well, in the words of Terry L. White, answering that question is like Galileo discovering that the earth wasn't at the center of the universe. The sun was. The sun doesn't orbit around us. The earth orbits around the sun. That was earth-shattering, by the way. He was branded a heretic for this revelation. But just as that was a major discovery for Galileo, we too discover that we are not the center of the universe. The sun is. The sun is. You see, Jesus and God, the Godhead does not orbit around us. We are not the center of the universe. We orbit around the sun. He is the center. It is all about him. You see, the Father did not create the universe for us. He created it for his Son. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says this. For in Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Listen to this. All things have been created through him and for him. Through him and for him. Him. It is all about Jesus. It is not about us. It's about Him. It's not for me. It's for Him. It's not about my life. It's about His life. You see, the Father's ultimate goal for creation was to glorify His Son by saving us through His grace. And in return, the Son's ultimate goal was to glorify His Father by being obedient, by being obedient even to going through with a death on the cross, and that through this act, he would glorify his Father. The Father 
wanted to glorify his son. The son wanted to glorify his father. And we, in this sense, are at the center of it all. Because through this creation, glory would be brought to the Son, glory would be brought to the Father, and in the end, all creation, for all time and eternity, will reflect that glory back to the Father, magnifying Him and Him alone, increasing their glory and praise for all time and for all eternity. It's not about us, it's about Him. John chapter 12, verse 28 Jesus predicted his own death to the crowd. And then listen to what he declared. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Later in John chapter 17, verses 4 to 5, Jesus' prayer summarizes the relationship between the Father and Son beautifully. Listen to what he prayed. Father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world began. There is a cosmic, never-ending, infinite exchange of love flowing back and forth between the Father and the Son. And the most wonderful thing, as far as it concerns us, is that here we are caught directly in the middle of this love relationship. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And we are caught in the middle. If their relationship is a sandwich, (laughs) then we are the peanut butter and jelly in the middle. If if their relationship is, is like that, we are caught in the middle, in the most wonderful exchange. We were created as an expression of the Godhead's eternal love for each other. We were intended from before time began to be his children, his family, and to glorify him in this life and in the next. And now I realize that this is heady stuff we're talking about here. Um, So to introduce now one of the most theologically rich uh, passages in all of Scripture, the most loaded passages in all of Scripture, is hardly fair, but I have to. So stay with me, okay? Are you, are you with me still? Can we, can we hang in there? Okay, we're going to flip now to Ephesians chapter 1. Jamie read that for us earlier, and for sake of just clarity of understanding this most rich of theological passages, uh, I've been quoting from the New Living Translation. Ephesians chapter 1. This passage from verse 3 to verse 14 is actually the longest run-on sentence in all of Scripture. Uh, In the original language, there are no periods in this entire paragraph. It's as though Paul is caught up in this euphoria of revelation and praise and worship to God. He just can't stop writing. So when you look at your Bible from verses 3 to 14, Paul is just like, So filled with the Spirit of God, he is just downloading all of this wonderful information. And so that is why it is just so rich. We're only going to focus right now on a few of the verses. Verses 4 to 6. Listen to what he wrote. For God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, before we get all squirrely over that big predestination word, right? Squirrel, okay. Come back. Predestination, I know it's a loaded, it's a loaded word. We're not going to go there right now. Before we get caught up on that, I want you to notice, first of all, the tone of this passage. It is absolutely jam-packed, filled to the brim with love and relationship. He chose us. He chose us. Who remembers being picked in the playground or, or uh, making teams in the playground at school? No one ever wants to get picked last, right? My strategy was to always volunteer to be the captain. That's the best way to avoid being picked last. P- volunteer to be the captain. But as, as the teams are getting picked and you're getting down to the last two, you know, the last three, two, and then you know when it comes to that last pick, there's got to be one person who's the last one chosen. Never feels good to be the last one chosen. But before God, before this whole process goes about, God saw us. And he looked at us, and he saw our flaws, he saw our failings, he saw our doubts and our fears, he saw it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he looked at us, and he said, I choose you. I choose you. He chose us. We could just stop and dwell on that for a long time. God chose me. Me. He chose me. And it wasn't a last resort. He did it at the very beginning. He looked across time and eternity. He saw Danny Greening and he said, I choose you. I choose you. And then Paul goes on from there. In love, in love, he chose us. In love, he adopted us to be his child. We could stop there again and meditate on that. Adoption. He adopted us. He he had the pick of all of time and and, and eternity. He chose us and then he says, come, join my family. I want to adopt you. He adopted us. Not begrudgingly. Paul goes on to say, it was his pleasure. It was his pleasure to do so. He wanted to. It made him happy. He said, I choose you. You put a smile on my face I want you in my family. I want you to be one of my children. He adopted us as one of his children in love, and it was his pleasure and his will to do so. And then he wraps it all up with saying, all freely given us in the one he loves. Freely given. We could stop and meditate on that again. We didn't have to purchase it. We didn't have to earn it. We didn't even have to ask for it. It was just there. Freely given. Freely given. And so it must be freely received. My friends, your being here this morning is no cosmic coincidence. You have been chosen, predestined by God to be caught up in the middle of the greatest relationship of love that has ever existed or will ever exist. And so what have we received? Verse 7 to 8 continues. In him, that is Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, 
that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. In the words of Captain Obvious, that's a pretty good deal. (laughs) Is there any other way to say it? That's a pretty good deal. That's a sweet deal. That's a sweetheart of a deal. It doesn't get any better than that. He did it all. And in him we have all of the riches of God lavished on us. It's all ours in Jesus. So now a brief word on that loaded term, predestination. The tension, of course, is that if God has predestined us to be saved, then what about our free will to choose? Does God's choosing us override our need to choose him? If God decided all of this before creation, then does that just mean that we're all actors sort of playing out our part in the script with only the illusion of free will? Was Adam and Eve's disobedience a free choice or a predetermined act? When we ask these questions, it can get us quite confused if we allow it to. Let me share with you a story that sort of highlights our dilemma. The story is told of a group of theologians who were discussing the tension between predestination and free will. And things became so heated that the group broke up into two opposing factions. They began arguing and bickering back and forth. But one man was caught in the middle of this. He didn't know which group to join with because he saw the merit of both sides and he was confused and he stood in the middle and there was two opposing factions. And the man in the middle, not knowing which group to join, finally just said, okay, I'll join the predestination group. So he walks over to the group. They asked him, who sent you here? No one sent me, he replied. I came of my own free will. Free will, they exclaimed. You can't join us. You belong with the other group. So he followed their orders. He went to the other group. There someone asked him, when did you decide to join us? The man replied, well, I I didn't really decide. I was sent here. Sent here, they shouted. You can't join us unless you've decided to join by your own free will. And the poor man is caught back and forth in a game of ping pong. His dilemma embodies our dilemma. Can, on the one hand, free will and God's predestination both exist and function harmoniously at the same time? The Bible gives an emphatic yes. It unreservedly declares, on the one hand, choose this day whom you will serve. And on the other hand, declares, God chose us. It's both. God has predestined us for sonship, but we must choose to become sons. Here is my explanation to the best of my limited understanding. I do not pretend to have the final say on this at all, at least as far as understanding goes. But this is as far as my thinking has gone on it to date, and I'm going to share it with you. I met Leanne some 13 years ago. We started a relationship and and grew to love each other. That love led to marriage and eventually out of love for each other, we decided that we had more love to share with a child. And so we made the choice, born out of our love, to have a child. And so because of that, Declan came to be. He didn't exist prior to that. No one knew him in this world. And yet, out of our choice, out of our love, 
he came into existence. So does that mean, does that mean that he was predestined for sonship? You could say so. Because in a sense, we predestined him for sonship in the Greening household without his say-so. We didn't ask his permission to bring him into existence. He had no say in the matter whatsoever. Out of our love for each other, we decided. And so he came to be. From his perspective, you could say that he was predestined to be born into our family. So then, does that mean that Declan has no free will? (laughs) well, just come into our house for an hour and you will see that his free will is alive and well and active on a daily basis. And so in the end, though he is born out of love to be a son, at some point in the future, he will have the very real choice to accept or reject that position of son in our family. We have borne him, we in our hearts purposed him to be our son, to be a part of our family. We made the choice. He had no say in that matter. But at some point in the future, he will have the choice to continue in that position, and he will have the very real choice to accept or reject the inheritance of faith that we have presented him with. You see, God has created and chosen us to be a part of his family forever. That is his eternal purpose and intent for us. But he leaves the final choice up to us. Every last soul that will be singing around God's throne for eternity will be there because they chose to be there. No one will be compelled to sing around God's throne. He desires it. He has created us for it but the final choice is ours and that choice is made possible because of what God already chose to do before the creation of the world he chose to bring us into existence and that though sin would mar us though Jesus blood pardon me through Jesus blood and sacrifice it would bring about an even more marvelous salvation for our good And for God's glory. Jesus' sacrifice of love on our behalf was decided upon before day one of creation. The last line of Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 refers to Jesus as the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. In other words, though it was yet to happen in the future, in God's mind, it was as good as done from the very beginning. His purpose and plan would not be altered or thwarted. That, my friends, was God's plan A. And it remains his plan A to this very day. One last passage for us to consider. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 20 says this. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. A tourist once visited a church in Germany, and he noticed a carved figure of a lamb high up near the top of the church's tower. 
He asked why it was there and was told that when the church was being constructed, a workman fell and plummeted to the ground from an extremely high scaffold. His co-workers rushed down, expecting to find him dead. There was no way someone could have survived a fall from such a height. But coming down to the ground to their surprise and great joy, the man was not only alive, but hardly injured. How did he survive the fall unscathed? Well, it just so happened that a flock of sheep was passing beneath the tower, and the falling man landed directly on top of a lamb. The lamb broke his fall, and the man was saved. But in the process, the lamb itself was crushed and killed. To commemorate the miraculous escape, someone carved a lamb on the tower at the exact height from which the workman had fallen. This first revelation of Jesus as the lamb slain before the world even began, it fills me with awe and wonder that the Godhead, foreknowing the incredibly high cost that a redeemed family of children would demand, they agreed that the price was not too high, that the eternal glory would be worth the temporary suffering And God looked out into the darkness. He uttered the words, Let there be light. And so the course was set. The Lamb of God would be crushed so that we today could be saved, redeemed, and one of his children. God's plan from eternity past included us. What a God! What a Savior. What a Lord. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we recognize today that we are treading on holy ground. We are delving into, as it were, the throne room of heaven. And as we even come on the the threshold, the fringes of it, and we just catch a little bit more of a glimpse inside that It does something inside of us. We just, we're overcome, Lord, by awe, by adoration, by worship, that you, this almighty God, from whom all things have come forth, nothing exists without you having thought of it, without you having intended it, and having set it into motion, that you, O God, looked across time and eternity, And you saw us, and before you set it into motion, you chose us according to your good pleasure and will to be a family member of the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Wow. We are in awe of you. And that you looked ahead and you said, the price is not too high. The lamb will be slain. And in your mind, it was as good as done from the beginning. There was no turning back when you set your mind towards your intent. You glorified your Son, and Lord Jesus, you glorified your Father. And today, we choose to continue in your will for us. We glorify you. We magnify your name. We worship you with everything that we are capable of giving. Oh God, may it be worship that is pleasing in your sight. And Father, as we continue into this Advent season, may we be stirred within our spirits to worship you for who you are, what you have done. 
May you be glorified in our lives. May you be glorified in this church. May you be glorified in this world that you have made it. Father, we love you, and we pray that we would go out from here today encouraged from having met with you, and may our lives reflect your light. In Jesus' name, amen.